I became a believer when I was in kindergarten. I came home from vacation Bible school, and my mother shared the gospel with me. My conversion is not dramatic, but it's still very much a life-changing miracle. I knew I was a sinner, and I knew that Jesus died on a cross to save me from my sins. And when I put my trust and faith in Jesus as Lord, I consider that the center point of my life. And I know that's true for all of us as believers, that we consider the center point of our lives is when we accepted Christ as our Savior. And that's because the center point of God's redemption plan is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the center point of the gospel. It's the center point of our greatest story. But God had a plan to redeem us even before the foundation of the world. We get to see it unfold in Genesis as God creates man and woman in his own image to be his image bearers. We're to glorify him and point the world to him. But Adam and Eve messed up. And they listened to the crafty serpent speak, Satan. They disobey God and then sin and death enter the world. So already by the third chapter of Genesis, we have this huge problem of the sin of humanity. But before we leave that chapter, God tells all three of them, Adam, Eve, and Satan, that one day the seed of Eve is going to crush Satan. In our darkest, darkest hour, God is working his redemption plan. He's got this. So this morning... We're going to look at how God's redemption plan is revealed through the prophets, through the cross, and through us. So first we're going to look at how God's redemption plan is revealed through the prophets. And we're going to look specifically at what the prophets prophesied about Passion Week. Now we know that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was humble and it was on a donkey. 500 years before Zechariah prophesied, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. He is humble and he's on a donkey. Scripture tells us that that donkey had never been ridden before. No one had sat on that donkey. My professor, Dr. Mark Bailey, his family before him were farmers. He says it is a miracle of sovereign ability that Jesus could ride a donkey that had never been ridden before from the top of the Mount of Olives, down the mount, across the Kidron Valley, up to Jerusalem, while it's parade time. It's Passover parade. So the crowd is throwing their coats in front of the donkey, they're waving palm branches, and everybody's shouting. But it is a miracle of sovereign ability displayed for the people. I think he's right. The prophet Daniel, he prophesied the exact time that Jesus would enter Jerusalem. He said that after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there would be 69 weeks until Messiah the Prince. Now, 69 weeks in the Jewish calendar is 483 years. And we learned last semester that our tax disease decree, this was the fourth decree, that Nehemiah and the Jews could go back and rebuild the wall in 444 BC. 483 years from 444 BC is the exact time that Jesus entered Jerusalem. 
Dr. Howard Honer is a former professor of Dallas Seminary, and he wrote a book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, and he studied this exact date. And I know Dr. Bailey and Dr. Swindoll also, as I've studied, hold to that date. That is fascinating. Jeremiah prophesied a new covenant. And with his new covenant, God says, I'll be their God, they'll be my people, and I'll dwell among them. And another provision of that new covenant, I'll forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more. And Jesus, at the last, when he is in the upper room, the last week of his life, he tells the disciples that his death is going to inaugurate that new covenant. And that's what happens on the cross. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 silver coins, and that was the price paid for a slave. Zechariah prophesied that 30 silver coins would be the price paid for the rejected shepherd. When Jesus is arrested, not only does Peter deny him, but the disciples flee. Zechariah also prophesied, strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. When Jesus' accusers try to bring charges against him, which, by the way, they're all false, and they can't even agree on what they're trying to charge him with. Caiaphas, the high priest, asked Jesus why he doesn't respond to his accusers. But Jesus doesn't say anything. He remains silent. Isaiah prophesied he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. Caiaphas asked Jesus if he is the Christ, the Son of God. Now this question mattered. Jesus breaks his silence. And when he breaks his silence, he makes it really, really clear his deity. He tells Caiaphas that he's going to sit at the right hand of power and he is going to return on the cloud of heaven. Caiaphas declares Jesus guilty of blasphemy and the death sentence is passed. And that's when they spit on him and strike him with their fist and slap him. And this physical abuse, Isaiah prophesied, his appearance was marred more than any man. Judas feels remorse. He's not repentant. He's remorseful. So he takes the 30 silver coins and he tries to give it back to the Jewish leaders and they refuse it. So Judas throws the silver coins in the temple sanctuary and then he goes away to hang himself. The Jewish leaders have no problem getting the Jewish, I mean, getting the silver coins out of the temple sanctuary. They take the coins and they go by a potter's field, a place to bury strangers. And Jeremiah prophesies that they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price, one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for a potter's field. The Jews don't have authority to execute Jesus, so they send him to Pilate, the Roman governor. And Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it is as you say. Pilate does not find reason to execute Jesus, nor does Herod. But it was a custom every year at Passover celebration that the crowd choose a prisoner to be released. So the Jewish leaders get the crowd to choose Barabbas. So the guilty is set free. And the innocent Jesus, they yell, crucify him, crucify him. And Isaiah prophesied 
He was despised. We did not esteem him. You know, the Apostle John, this is in John 19, 14. He says that the verdict came on that Friday, and that was during the Passover preparation. So at the same time, the high priests are slaughtering the lambs for the Passover, and they do this, they would have done that into the night. The same time these Passover lambs are being slaughtered, Jesus is being crucified on the cross. The true Passover lamb. How could that be anything in that timing but God ordained? Jesus is nailed to the cross and he's crucified between two criminals. Isaiah prophesied he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the the sins of many, and he interceded for the transgressors, and we know he did that on the cross. The soldiers cast lot to see who gets Jesus' clothes, and the psalmist prophesied, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The Jews ask that the legs of Jesus and the other two be broken because they want to hasten their death. They don't want them on these, the cross or the Sabbath. Well, Jesus had already died. His legs didn't have to be broken. The psalmist says he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. They pierced Jesus' side to confirm he died. We know that they pierced his hands and feet. Isaiah said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. That evening, there was a man from Arimathea named Joseph. And he went to to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body so that he could bury him. And the scripture tells us that Joseph was a rich man. Isaiah prophesied his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. There are so many more prophecies about Christ. There are so many more prophecies about Passion Week. I just touched on a very few of them. My current professor, Dr. Stephen Kim, explains that A third of all the messianic prophecies came true at Jesus' first coming. They were fulfilled, and they were all fulfilled, literally. The two-thirds left will be fulfilled at Jesus' second coming. And if the first third were fulfilled literally, the two-thirds left will be fulfilled literally, right? So that means when Daniel prophesies and Jesus says that the Son of Man will come on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet and he's going to gather his elect, it's going to happen. It's going to be fulfilled, literally. You know, our culture struggles with the authority of the Bible, That it is the inspired word of God. I don't know how anybody can study prophecy and not understand that scripture is living, active, and God-breathed. So we looked at how God's redemption plan is revealed through the prophets. Now let's look at God's redemption plan and how it's revealed through Jesus on the cross. We're dead center here. 
If you will, open your Bibles to Matthew 27. We're going to look at verses 33 through 56 as we study God's redemption plan through the cross. First of all, the cross is real. If you will, look in verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. This wine mixed with gall was a sedating drink. Jesus is not going to drink it because he is not going to dull the pain that he's going to experience. He may quench his thirst later, but he's not going to dull his suffering. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The cross was real. The reality of crucifixion is that it is a terrible and gruesome way to die. The Gospels don't provide a lot of details about the specifics of crucifixion, likely because first century readers would have been very familiar with crucifixion. They knew exactly what that meant when they read it or when they heard it. Victims died either from physical trauma, loss of blood, shock, or suffocation. They would asphyxiate because they couldn't lift their bodies up off the cross to breathe. The first three hours, Jesus suffers in daylight. And from the other Gospels, we know the statements that he makes, and it tells us so much about who Jesus is. He forgives the people that are killing him. And Luke records, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And Jesus saves the man next to him. They're both dying, and he saves him. Luke tells us, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you'll see me in paradise. And when Jesus sees his mother and the disciple nearby whom he loves, so we believe that to be John, he says, woman, behold your son. And he says to the disciple, behold your mother. And we know that from that hour on, John took Mary into his own household. Jesus knew his mother's sorrow from the cross. In verse 45, it says that from the sixth hour, darkness fell on the land until the ninth hour. That would have likely been from 12 to 3, so it's dark. It's the middle of the day. That's a supernatural act of God. It's Jesus' next statements that I want us to look at. And in verse 46, both Matthew and Mark record this statement where Jesus says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you, are, have you forsaken me? Right then, right then, Jesus enters spiritual death. Jesus is separated from the Father. Jesus had never, ever, ever, ever endured separation from the Father. And I love what Dr. Charles Sindahl says. He says, but he willingly did it, knowing that the penalty for the sins of all humanity received its atonement then. 
The new covenant began. The universe is redeemed. Every sin ever committed was paid for right then. That means every sin you and I have ever committed, will ever commit, no matter how bad, was paid for. Right then, we're given hope. You know, when we take communion, I've always wanted to take communion and try to be mindful of a, of a clean heart going into communion and focuses on Jesus' sacrifice and what he did and just praising him and glorifying him. And as I've studied this Passion Week and being image bearers, I also want to come to communion and think and pray, Lord, how is it going to change how I live? I need it to change how I live, what you have done. I want to be an image bearer. Peter said that Jesus bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. I want to live for righteousness and I want to be a light. John also tells us two more statements that Jesus makes. I am thirsty and it is finished. And if you look in verse 50, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. You know, Luke tells us that Jesus said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Jesus did it. He's in charge of his destiny with his last breath. Now we looked at how real the cross is and our redemption. Now let's look at the witness's reaction to the cross. In verse 40, Matthew records that there were passers-by that were hurling abuse at Jesus. And they're saying, you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And then there were Jewish leaders that were mocking him. See verse 43, saying, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. So here Jesus is hanging on the cross, listening to these people hurl this abuse at him, and he is obedient to the Father. He is perfect, sinless, and holy, and he is enduring the cross. So if you or I ever think, I'm being obedient to God, why is this happening to me? That's not fair. That shouldn't happen to me. Jesus knows what it is like. We've already talked about the criminals on either side of Jesus that are insulting him. But one has a change of heart. And there were some that were near the cross that misunderstood Jesus when he cried out. And they thought he was calling Elijah. And so they take a reed with sour wine and put on a sponge and give it to him. But then, the moment Jesus dies... The temple curtain that cut off the Holy of Holies tears. And that curtain, that veil was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. And it rips from the top down. It doesn't rip from the bottom up. They can't say man did it. It ripped from the top down. And there was another witness to, to the cross. And that is creation. Because the earthquakes and the rocks split, tombs open, and bodies of the saints that had fallen asleep were raised. And when all this happens, 
there is one stunned and awestruck Roman centurion. And he says, surely he was the son of God. And then there's a group of women who had been with Jesus in verse 55, you see. And they watch the events from the cross at a distance. I think about, where would I have been? Can you imagine where you would have stood watching it turn dark, watching Jesus on the cross, the earthquake, the rocks open? Would you want it to be close enough so you could hear Jesus' statements like when he spoke to his mother or far at a distance? It's just overwhelming to consider how much he loved us to die for us. But God had a plan. God's people now have direct access to his presence through Jesus. The tearing of the temple veil brought an end to the error of the law. Jesus at the perfect holy sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God, did away with any need for a sacrificial system. He paid the price in full once and for all. He made it so we can enter God's presence through him our high priest, where he is sitting at the right hand of God advocating for us all the time. And we have constant access to God's presence through prayer and spirit. God's redemption plan is revealed through the prophets and the cross. And now let's look at how it's revealed through us. You know, even though sin entered the world, we're still to be God's image bearers. We're still to glorify him and point the world to him. Let's look for a minute at the upper room discourse in John 13 through 17. We're not going to turn there, but this is, this is Jesus' way of saying to his disciples, here's how I want you to live. I need you to maintain a relationship with me and other believers. You're to be my witnesses to a world that is contrary and difficult. And you'll face persecution. And Satan is going to be involved in the opposition. But I'm going to give you my spirit to empower you so you can accomplish the mission while I'm gone. And then he gives them very specific things that they are to do. Abide in me, he says. Abide in me and I in you. We are commanded to abide in him. And abide means stay in place. To remain. And the key there is in Christ. Because that's our identity with Jesus. God the Father sees us the way he sees his son. So when we abide in Christ, we can with joy deal with the contrary world and persecution. And we can bear fruit like branches to a vine. And we're to love one another, Jesus said. And you know, he says this is a new commandment. But we know in Leviticus, God said, love one another as yourself. Well, what makes this new is Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. Well, he loved them to the cross, to death. We're to love one another the way Jesus loved us. And we're to serve one another in humility. Jesus said, if I then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So if you think about it, when Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, 
they're going through this very sacred time. He is instituting the Lord's Supper and explaining all that that entails. And what do they do? They start arguing about who's among them is the greatest. And what does Jesus do? He picks up a towel and starts washing their feet. We are to abide in Christ, love one another, serve one another, pray for each other and ourselves. You know, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays for himself to the Father. He prays for his disciples. And he prays for us as future believers. And when he prays for his disciples, he prays for them to have a fullness of joy, to be protected from the evil one, and to be sanctified in the truth. And I started thinking... If I just prayed those three things for everybody on my prayer list. To have fullness of joy. Protection from the evil one. And sanctified in the truth. I want to change how I pray to include this. And one more thing. We're going to back up a little bit further to when Jesus enters Jerusalem. He wept. Now, this is not the same type of weeping that he wept when Lazarus died. In Luke 19, 41, it says that Jesus wept. This is a, he wails out loud. Our Savior enters Jerusalem and wails out loud. And he is wailing out loud for those he knows that will reject him. Because he says, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling He grieves the lost. We should grieve the lost and share the gospel. My husband has his calendar on his phone, his cell phone. And the first thing that comes up every single day, share the gospel. He's so intentional about it. And I have seen him weep more than once. And not for a particular person or family member. He just weeps. For the lost. I want to have a heart like that. You know, as we look ahead to the future of God's redemption plan, one day, all the earth is going to be filled with his image. But will we glorify him in the meantime? Will we abide in Christ, love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, grieve the lost, and share the gospel? Can you imagine, wouldn't it just be great if God just looked down, if the Lord just said, there she goes again. She's glorifying my name. You know, when I was in kindergarten, and I accepted Christ as my Savior, I didn't have a clue what God's redemption plan was or God's sovereignty or anything like that. But I knew he had the whole world in his hands. And that meant my little world. And he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would have everlasting life. And I didn't know what it meant to be an image bearer. But I wanted to please him. And I didn't want my light under a bushel. (laughs) I wanted it to shine. You know how we tie all this together? We glorify him. We exalt him and glorify him. And we become the image bearers we were created to be. The death and resurrection 
It's the center point of God's redemption plan because Jesus is the center point of everything. We're going to listen to just the last verse of Phil Wickham's song and then Sunday's coming and then we'll close in prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for loving us so much that you died on a cross for our sins. And you have defeated sin and death. And we glorify your name. In Jesus' name, in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.